Greetings, folks, and welcome to episode 28 of the Far Beyond Metal podcast. I'm your host and spirit guide on this metal journey, Daniel Cordova. In this episode, Gene Hoagland of Testament, Galacticon, and formerly of thousands of other bands tells us about his first band. And later, I recommend Mendacity. Before all that, I interview violinist and vocalist Tim Charles of the band Ne Obliviscaris. Nabla Viscaris is a favorite of mine, and Tim is a big reason why. The band's third album, Earn, just dropped earlier this year, and they just wrapped a North American tour with friends of the show, Allegion. During said tour, Tim took some time to chat with me about the tour, the album, Violin Experimenting, the movie Tangled, and a lot more. I should note that there was a hiccup with the beginning of the recording, so it starts with Tim already discussing the recently wrapped tour. Don't consider it an error, though. Consider it an homage to... I don't know, Nerdist and WTF, and how they just kind of start halfway through a conversation. Anyway, here's some of Intravenous from Nabla Viscars from the new album Earn before we get started. record and then you know straight away you get a chance to to get to know and hear uh, and experience uh, the new songs live which has just been amazing to, to add those songs into the set and to see how much everyone's been enjoying them and, and getting to them it's been you know really uh, a really fantastic experience for us and then you know just you know like I guess with the size of the crowds you know being much bigger than the last time we'd come through and you know we've had uh, you know I think three or four sold out shows on the tour which has been amazing and um, you know everything's just been, you know, I guess, you know, that much bigger and better than when we've been here in the past. And you know, as a band, like that's all you can really hope for. So we've been really pleased. I was at the uh, show in San Francisco, and I'm not gonna lie, I felt very special being such a big fan. And at the first show where those sh- songs are being played, uh, how was? You used to live in San Francisco, correct? Yeah, I lived there for a few years back when I was a little kid, back in the back in the nineties. <laughs> what is it like coming back to it, uh, to it now, when you're working? I guess. Uh, I, I always love coming back to San Francisco because, um, you know, it was someone, it was somewhere that was, uh, you know, special to me, and you know, I, I still got some good friends, you know, in San Francisco. Every time I come through San Francisco, you know, I, I catch up um, with a couple friends I've still kept kept in touch with from way back in the day, and. It's been, um, I guess, one of the cool things about touring because you know I hadn't been back to San Francisco since the like the the Christmas New Year's of like ninety nine two thousand, 
and then you know uh just last year <clears throat> you know i managed to get back there for for the first time in you know 17 years or 15 16 years uh and uh and now it's been like three times in the last in the last two years which has been amazing but one of the, the special things that happened this time coming through san francisco was um one of my very first violin teachers uh uh, Kathy Lee, who is a Suzuki violin teacher in San Francisco, um, and I learned from her, with her from 1990 to 93. When and when I started with her, I'd only been learning the violin for about a year, and she was really, I guess, the first violin teacher that I guess that I still hold on to aspects of of what I was taught that kind of helped form some of my technique as a violinist and some of the way that I think about violin playing and uh, I had the pleasure because we, we arrived in San Francisco for three or four days before the two started to have rehearsals um, because now the band's kind of a little bit scattered across the world with Benji's uh, moved back to France and a new bass player Martino is in Italy and so we arrived there for rehearsal and I got the chance to actually do a, a guest master class at my old violin teacher's studio and she was still teaching out of the exact same house that where I learned in 1993 and uh, you know I was even teaching the daughter of one of the, the students that I learned with you know, at the same time, like back in the nineties. And so it was, um, that very cool, um, you know, I guess things coming around, uh, you know, even this many years later. Um, so yeah, it's definitely always really, really great to get back there for sure. I, um, I'm more familiar as far as actually playing music with like a guitar or a bass. Uh, but in my head is your technique rather unorthodox and did you get that from her perhaps? Um, my look my technique is and isn't unorthodox i mean uh, if you go on basic stuff like the the bow hold and left hand position and uh my normal vibrato and things like that um you know that's all relatively standard i mean lots of violin teachers teach things in different ways but Mine's like within the realms of normality and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, some of the stuff in regards to my bow hold or left hand position, some of that stuff is um, back to Kathy, but it's also, you know, there's also a couple other teachers from when I was at university that uh, worked with closer on some of my technical things, which had a big impact as me. Uh, impact on me as well. Some Australian teachers like uh, Gertz Richter, Finton Murphy and uh, Elizabeth Sellers who all some of the best you know classical violin teachers in Australia who I had the, the pleasure of learning with in my late teens and you know early 20s. But I guess <clears throat> the difference I guess for me is is the way I employ things in a stylistic way. So you know I I take classical techniques like there's a uh, a technique called ponticello, which is where you kind of make this kind of icy sound when you play like right on the bridge of the violin, which is the little wooden, you know, curved thing under the strings. And uh, I use that technique, which is used in things like Vivaldi Four Seasons to make this kind of wintry, icy sound. <clears throat> and I use it to make uh, like these basically what would be close to like a you know an electric guitar squeal 
um, and these things that are, I guess, quite unusual for a violinist. So it's basically, you know, I take a lot of classical techniques and, and use them in different ways. But I also take things from other things like, you know, a lot of the, the slides and stuff like that that you get in the left hand from jazz violin playing, I use that bit in a metal context. And yeah, just kind of, you know, I guess the, all the best musicians steal from lots of different places. And so, you know, um, I guess that's probably what I aspire to do. This may be a little inside for some of my listeners, but do you and uh, Anton of Judgment Day and Fox Hills Brigade ever exchange technique ideas? You know what? Uh, we haven't. But um, I was actually thinking, because I, I haven't had a chance to, to meet Anton in person, um, and I was actually thinking about uh, how... Because uh, we were so busy in San Francisco when we were there for three or four days, and after I left... Um, I actually thought, oh shit, like, you know, I, that was maybe the first time I had enough time to maybe try and organize to to catch up because, you know, I've been a, a big fan of, of Judgment Day um, <clears throat> for a long time. And, <clears throat> and that was definitely a band. <clears throat> Hold on. It's, it's fine. <clears throat> ah, uh, and that was definitely a band that influenced me in the way that I thought about playing the violin because I had heard Apocalyptica playing distortion on cellos but i hadn't actually heard anyone play distortion on the violin before until i heard anton in, in judgment day and you know they were just kind of this you know small band out of san francisco at the time that you know i can't even remember how i found them i found them somewhere in myspace i think i think and, i did too um, actually <laughs> and uh you know somehow i got connected something you know i was i was really on the search for alternative violin playing stuff and somehow i got put onto to their stuff and um you know definitely had an had an influence on the way i thought about um, you know, the approach to the violin and, and distorted violin playing. Uh, you've traversed the changing gears completely now. Um, are, are you feeling well? You sound like you got a bit of the uh, tour bug. <laughs> you know what? About three or four days ago, I'd almost completely lost my voice. Uh, and I'm actually not feeling t too bad now. That's good. But, uh, but it just takes a bit to warm up during the day and i've only been awake for about an hour so <laughs> so i'll be i'll be all good by the by the show tonight thankfully good 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 but um yeah just taking it taking a while to for my voice to to get its shit together uh you've done a few u.s tours now does the vast emptiness in the middle or the absurd number of subways or anything still surprise you when you're traversing this country uh i, I mean nothing really surprised me that much with america anymore you kind of just expect the unexpected. I mean, we were somewhere and, uh, you know, uh, what, our, our tour manager came back to the bus with a, a, a donut with bacon on it. And we were joking about how that was a great example of everything that was wrong with America. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> you're, you're vegan, but, right? You know, I'm actually not, but I'm, not. half the band is. Oh, okay. Um, Couldn't remember which half, sorry. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the interesting things with America is that it, it's this kind of country that wears its heart on its sleeve and it wears all its qualities right out in the open. So, you know, uh, as a result, the good and the bad things about a country like the U.S. they're really obvious. Like a lot of countries, you know, they hide what is not good about that country, or it takes a while to work it out. Whereas 
you know, in in the U.S., you know, um, you know, we go to a lot of the shows, and everyone is so nice to us, and the shows are fantastic. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's really is our our favorite place to tour in the world in regards to, you know, the the consistent love we get from the fans night after night after night all through you know all through the U.S. and Canada. But um, but there are definitely some things that you know that puzzle us. You know, like you know, I remember that there was uh, you know there was some you know shooting in texas like early in this tour um at a church and one of the guys in the band made some remark about you know they were being a smartest about like oh you know what 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 really would have avoided this is if just if everyone in the church just had a gun and just we need more guns and blah blah, blah. and he was being a smart ass because in australia you know it's the exact opposite like about you know 20 years ago there was a big massacre and the government basically just banned banned guns basically and basically no one have guns and even half the criminals can't get any guns because they're so expensive on the black market and um it's just it's just such a different culture and the funny thing was was that then literally a few hours later like the texas governor or something like that came out saying that you know if all the parishioners had have had guns maybe this would have been avoided so as australians we kind of think that stuff's a bit crazy but you know each their own i mean it's uh, one of the fascinating things about touring around the world you know you get to go and experience so many different cultures and um i just find it fascinating because you try to i guess understand um you know uh by talking to people you know how uh you know how people come to to that place in in their culture and because people have such different histories and you know going back hundreds of years and that helps shape you know where where uh, people end up and where countries end up and you know when you're living on the other side of the world you just don't understand it but when you're actually there and you get to meet people and talk to them and ask them about stuff like this, you know, you can hear lots of different sides of the, 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 you know, approach to all of these different ideas. And for me, that's, that's actually one of the really, you know, great things about being able to tour in a band, just that, um, slowly gaining a better understanding of, I guess, the world and cultures and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The American fetishism of guns. I grew up in Texas a little bit and I've kind of lived all over, but I've never, <coughs> clicked with that and yeah it's weird um you and elysian are two bands that got on the like patreon platform pretty early and faced a bit of backlash become of it is that what brought the two bands together in the first place uh you, you know what like in regards to this tour it was kind of just coincidence i mean I, uh, a couple of those guys you know came along to our show last year and um you know we had uh you know, met them briefly, and after we launched our Patreon, um, you know, one of the guys contacted me, um, <clears throat> you know, saying how much he related to the stuff that that we were talking about and that we were pushing, and so you know, they were definitely aware of what we were doing, and that was like this definitely an, uh, an influence on them deciding to so start their own Patreon as well. But um, but the, I mean, them being on the tour was like, the, the, like our agent was was. We were talking about different bands, and our agent was like, you know, hey, what about these guys? And we were like, fuck yeah, <laughs> um, really cool band, and you know, we respected what they're doing musically and with their business and everything like that. And you know, the backlash is just you know, one of those things where, you know, uh, we want. I guess it's just trying to make sure you educate people because when you're the first at anything. Not everyone's going to understand, and that was one of the things that we spoke about it in amongst the band at the at the beginning was that you know don't worry about 
you know, the naysayers because most people are on board and they're being really supportive. And, uh, you know, when people look back, you know, in a few years' time, you know, they'll look back at this as a positive, significant thing um, instead of something that was negative because, like, the music industry is changing and, you know what, like, uh, things kind of keep changing and the way that bands interact with their fans is going to keep changing and it's going to get more interactive and there's going to be more things like like patreon or different variations of it and different variations of the sort of thing that we're doing and in five ten years time you know the sort of thing that we're doing is not going to be considered unusual it's just going to be one of the ways that bands interact with fans and um you know i, I really strongly believe that and so it's just that thing of you know when you really believe in something you just stay the course and you know the the support we get from our fans is absolutely amazing and you know the reality is is that you know the patreon has you know transformed our career and our ability to you know do this band you know as a career instead of just a hobby and our ability to come to north america now for the third time in two years is because of uh, you know the money we have through patreon so i think as our fans realized that we were reinvesting that money straight back into the band back into tours and back into getting an album done um you know more more and more people have jumped on board. Yeah, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I honestly don't remember how I got the uh, a digital copy of the Aurora Veil vale demo, but uh, when I first saw you guys open for Cradle of Filth, there were people who were just like me at the shows, and it seems like your fan base is a really strong one, like, like kind of a cult following almost. Um, on the topic of Aurora Veil, vale, does it feel like it's been 10 years since that demo? Um, I guess yes and no. Like when, uh, you know, when I kind of realized that it's been like 14 years since the band first started and 10 years since we were avail, uh, I mean, that, that sounds like a crazy, insane, long amount of time. Uh, but, and, and at the same time, like when I think back to them, it seems like a lifetime ago, you know, like back in 2007, you know, that was like before, we even had Benji in the band, you know, he joined shortly after that demo. And, uh, you know, just thinking back to where, where we were with our lives, everything was just so different then. It does, does really seem like a, a lifetime ago. But I guess on the other hand, a lot of people treat us like a new band because we've only really been touring the world for about three years or three or four years. And... Um, so we're kind of this emerging band in the international market, despite the fact that you know we started this band like forever ago. But I guess in some ways, it was really the first nine years of the band. You getting up to Port Alive. <clears throat> I guess it was just that different approach where we were. You know, it was just a hobby, something that we fit where we could. And it was really only after Port Alive came out and we saw the reaction to that record that we started realizing that hey, maybe we should. You know, maybe aim a little bit higher and, and start thinking about trying to take this band outside of Australia.
That was some of Forget Not from the first Neabla Fiskars album, The Portal of Eye. We'll have more with Tim in just a bit. But now, this is my first band. Every musician has to start somewhere, and in this episode, Gene Hoagland discusses his heavy origins. What was your first band called, and what did it sound like? My first band was called Dark Angel. Oh, I've heard and of them. <laughs> it's actually, but you've never heard of this Dark Angel. It was completely not related to the later Dark Angel that I joined. Um, it was nothing to do with them. And it was just some high school dudes that, you know, going to high school with, and, you know, we've got this band, let's do some jamming. And, Hey, what do you guys call? We're called dark angel. I'm like, Hmm, that's a really corny name. If I join your band, we're going to change the name of this band. And they're like, cool, man, that's cool. And we did some rehearsing and we never played any gigs or anything, but it was as heavy a metal as we could come up with when we're 15. And it was designed to be, you know, we wanted to be heavy. We wanted to, you know, and at, when I was 15, I mean, there was a lot of the radio stuff that was starting to get real popular, you know, that was called metal. Like Motley Crue was starting to get their airplay and Quiet Riot was just coming around and you were having bands like Autograph. You ever heard of those guys? Remember them? I don't turn, know Autograph. Turn up the radio. I don't blame oh, you. I know, that that so- a- I know that song. I didn't know it was by a band called Autograph. <laughs> Yeah, turn up the radio. That was a big radio hit. And, you know, I'm sure there was guys in the band that could have said, like, hey, man, let's kind of play like all that stuff we're hearing on the radio, you know. But it's like, no, F that, man. Let's 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 play some heavy stuff, you know, try to make it as heavy as we could. And I don't know who our influences were because we were so young, but I know we just tried to play fast and heavy and brutal and, and all that sort of stuff. And that, and that was cool. But uh, so that was my first band. It was a super heavy metal band called Dark Angel that ended up not even being related to the other Dark Angel. You said to join that band, they had to change their name. Do you know you guys changed the name too, or did you ever get around to that? Carnage. Carnage. That's solid. <laughs> Carnage. Yeah. You know, it's like, that was the heaviest name we could think of. I think my sister mentioned it. Like, hey, why don't you guys call yourselves Carnage? I'm like, fuck, that sounds cool. Yeah. Hey, we're now Carnage. And they're like, okay. Yeah. Cause they, they had, some, it was funny. They had some kind of like philosophical meaning to why they were called dark angel you know it's just the way we live our lives it's like man we're a bunch of 15 year olds man you're, you're not <laughs> you know we're we're not bikers here like you're 15 year olds come on you know like let's 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 be a heavy metal band let's call ourselves carnage so there you go awesome Gene Hoagland's The Atomic Clock, The Clock Strikes 2 is now available at hoaglandindustries.com. For more Gene Hoagland, head there or to facebook.com slash Gene Hoagland official page. Now here's the rest of my interview with Tim Charles of Neabla Viscaris and some of Eerie, my favorite track from the latest album, Earn.
Now your third album, Earn, I'm already seeing it on end of year list. Like I think it was on Prague Sphere's number one. Uh, how does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. Like, is there any sort of validation of uh, all this hard work and stuff now that you're seeing it in such high regard? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess for me, I kind of felt that the validation, <clears throat> you know, as soon as we put it out, um, and and from then on, everything is is kind of a bonus. I mean, you're always looking for as, as much good press as possible, to, just because it helps more people discover the record and more people to check it out but um but i guess the the great thing for us was that when we finished the record we really felt like this was the best album that we'd ever done and we really felt it that do something that we were really proud of but um you know we we didn't know what everyone would think because you know we thought it was a bit different the songwriting is not enormously different but the production is very different you know the drum sound the guitar sounds even the way the clean vocals were produced, like, uh, you know, a lot of things sound sound sonically different on the record. You know, um, I, I, even though the songwriting, I would say, is only slightly different. <clears throat> like, I would say songwriting-wise, Ernie's is closer to Citadel than Citadel was to Portal of Eye, because that was qu quite a big songwriting difference, I felt. Um, whereas these feel quite related, but the production was really different. So we really didn't know what people would think, but we knew we loved it. And that's the way we run the band. We just do things for ourselves and we just try to make sure we love it. Not that we like it. We try to make sure that we absolutely love it and think it's the best thing we possibly could do. And then you just throw it out there and cross your fingers. And so we've been uh, very, you know, pleased to, to hear so many people come back and, you know, agree with us that it's, it's the best record we've done so far. It is a really great record, and I'm not just saying that because like, you're on my show right now, but like, the track that stands out most to me, and I've never heard the title said out loud, so pardon me if I butcher it, Eerie? Eerie? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's right. That song opens yeah, with a lengthy, like, very melodic, almost ballad feel to it, uh, which feels kind of foreign for the band. How was, how was, what was the process like of that particular song? You know what, that song... I mean, that's probably the song I'm proudest of on the record, and not because it's necessarily the best, just because it's something that, that was different. You know, I love all of the songs on the record, but that one really stood out as being something different that we hadn't done before. Um, <clears throat> you know, and it came along just because, you know, Matt had an idea. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Uh, Matt had an idea for, for the intro to that song. And, um, you know, we had a day off in Dublin, Ireland last October. And, uh, you know, he, you know, was just playing around with a few, a few ideas at Soundcheck and got to that day and had this day off and you know, just chilling out in our hotel. And um, we're playing around with a few things with that. <clears throat> and, you know, I was uh, kind of joking with him with, with, with him that it was kind of the chord progression sounded like you know maybe something off Devin Townsend's Terrier album or something like that that it was just something really different just the sort of chord progressions and how kind of laid back it was and you know it just set up this really great chordal template for me to play with um, you know to then do vocals over or um, violin and these string sections and you know, we actually put together most of that song on that one day in, in Dublin and, um, <clears throat> you know, putting together some bits and pieces that we had from, you know, from some other riffs and stuff that we've been working on. We basically put it all together on that one day and, 
at the end of that day, we went from having, you know, just bits and pieces to having this like 10, 11 minute song, um, you know, with the rhythm guitars. Um, and so the initial aspect of the song came together really quickly. And that was like October. Whereas then the song wasn't finished basically until like, you know, April, mid April. <laughs> and I remember I only finished writing the violin parts like this, the violin. So at the end of the song, I finished literally on the, on the morning I was supposed to record violins because I was just trying out all these different ideas and nothing was quite gelling. I knew what I wanted. I just couldn't find it in my head. And then all of a sudden I found it, you know, that, that morning, you know, I was going to be recording for, you know, a, a few days. And so I found it that morning and quickly uh, called, uh, you know, Troy, our, our producer and said, Hey, I'm going to be about like an hour too late. Cause I, I've just written this fantastic part and I'm going to like practice it right now. And I'm going to record it like first thing when I come in. And so I literally like, you know, wrote it, went to the studio, recorded the, you know, that, the violin solos for, for Erie and, and, and locked it in. And it was, uh, you know, definitely something that felt like it was, it's us pushing boundaries of what was acceptable to be part of a Nail Scar song. And, uh, well, that's what we always try to do and what we always like doing. And, um, you know, I, I kind of thought that it would be people's favorite song or their least favorite song. <clears throat> just because it was so different. And I've been really pleased and excited just to see, you know, so many reviews and so many people have said that that's their favorite song on the record. Um, and, uh, you know, we haven't been playing it on this tour because it's not really a super heavy song. So we kind of played all the heavy stuff on this tour and we've already got forget not in the set list for this tour. And so we kind of used that, I guess, as the, the quieter moment on the set list. But I think from the fan response, I think next time we come back to North America, or, you know, basically the discussion of the band was, Oh shit! We we better make sure we play that next time because we can get a lot of people saying uh, they wish we hadn't played it. I, I enjoyed your set in San Francisco, <laughs> but if I were to request something in the next time round, I would put that on the list. Um, I've got a couple more for you, just quick little ones. Uh, you and I are friends on Facebook, and I was perusing your page just to try and find something kind of weird to ask you about. Uh, on your page, you apparently like one movie. Do you know what that movie is? Ah. Uh. Without, I say without looking, can you name it? Um, I like I like a movie. I don't know. Um, what would I have maybe come across on Facebook? I don't know. Maybe Wayne's World? I don't know. It, <laughs> it is the Disney classic Tangled. Um, is it really? It is absolutely <laughs> Tangled. Uh, so what makes uh, a movie about Mandy Moore singing about her hair apparently your favorite movie of all time? <laughs> You know, I don't know how that I would have ended up without the Facebook, but um, actually, I, I actually, I do, actually, I do know how that would have ended up on my Facebook. I don't know how it would have been liked on there, but basically, um, I have a, a beautiful five and a half year old little girl back home who is uh, eagerly awaiting my return to Australia next Thursday, um, and uh, and so I've gotten in the habit of watching lots of kids' movies. It's amazing, amazing as a dad, how many kids' movies you end up watching and appreciating. <laughs> and so I think the way that's in on my Facebook is I reckon I've done a post sometime about watching Tangled with my daughter and then maybe Facebook comes up and I've liked it or, or whatever. But you know what? Like I, I, I do love and appreciate anything that um, that is done well. Um, I wouldn't say that Tangled is my favorite of the kids' movies. I do actually. I've watched Frozen about 15 times because my daughter just loves it. And uh, I I do appreciate that the the soundtrack for that is just brilliantly written, and the songs for that are just 
you know, great examples of traditional songwriting. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, Disney and kids stuff um, that uh, that has some, yeah, really great examples of, of uh, you know, fantastic, you know, traditional songwriting, um, which is not something that I'm actually very good at at all. You know, everything I do turns to 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would highly recommend you and your daughter see the movie Coco. If uh, you... Sure. I would highly recommend you and your daughter see the movie Coco. Uh, if you get the same screens that we have here in the States, there's a 20-minute Frozen short film in the beginning, and then the entire movie is just a love... Like, it's a movie that's just a love note to the music. They, like, all the musicianship and, like, the guitar fretting is all 100% accurate. And it's a beautiful story about, like, family and music, and I think it's great. Sure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'd say maybe get some tea in you. You sound a little rough. Uh, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this has been great. Uh, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, have a good rest of the tour. And next time you're stateside, I'll, I'll wave at you in San Francisco area. No worries. Thank you very much, Daniel. Vescaris will be back on the road next year promoting their latest album, Earn, from Season of Mist Recordings. For dates and other information, head to patreon.com slash and facebook.com slash band. Finally, I'm going to end this episode and the show for the year with a recommendation of the band Mendacity. Mendacity are a death metal trio from Toronto, Canada that just released their demo. Here's the first track from that. It is entitled Enlightened Ones in its entirety. <laughs>
For more Mendocity, hit their Bandcamp, bandmendocity.bandcamp.com or bandmendocity.com. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. You can talk to me at facebook.com slash farbeyondmetal. You can email me at farbeyondmetaldan at gmail.com. I am on Twitter at Ovacord. Or you can leave a five-star iTunes review wherever you do that. I would assume iTunes. And, of course, the theme song is Far Beyond Metal from the band's Dropping Young Lad from their album The New Black, courtesy of Century Media Records and Devin Townsend himself. Thank you for listening. Catbox Production.